And we will be in the book of John again. We're starting chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6, we'll start with verse 1. But let me open up in prayer for the Word of God. Father, we always want to remember that this is a, a holy time, a time where, where the Word of God is brought before the people, your people. And Lord, I'm asking that uh, you would take this message and that you would empower it by your Spirit, that you would help me, Father, to, to have a clear mind and that I might be able to present this in such a way, Lord, that would honor you. I pray for the hearts of everyone here that we would be open to receive this word this morning. Show us, Lord, your faithfulness this morning. Show us how you are truly the God of provision. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working our way through the book of John. We've gone through five chapters now, and now we're moving into chapter 6. And again, the heart behind the book of John is that John the Apostle, when he wrote this, he wants people to, to see the truth about who Christ is, and then when they understand that He truly is God the Son, the Messiah that had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, they would realize that and respond in faith and be saved. Now, if, if you remember from last week, Jesus very clearly, very clearly in His own words declared that He is God the Son. And now moving here into chapter 6, there's going to be a miracle that Jesus performs. He's going to feed 5,000 men, by the way, and their families. And so there's a lot of people there. And He takes a little bit, five little loaves and two fish, and He transforms it into a meal for thousands. And I began to think about what does this mean for us? I think what it means is that God provides and as we take a look at this text, we realize that sometimes this life is not easy. There are things in this life on planet earth that are they're difficult for us as people. Sometimes the challenges seem too much for us. Sometimes the, the concepts that are, that are shared in Scripture about who God are, they're too big for, for our brains to comprehend. But God brings in the difference. He fills the gap where we can't make it. This morning, I find that normally when we come against a challenge, if we're honest, most of us probably try to often fix it on our own. And often what we do is we include God kind of as prayer support for our issue. But what we'll see this morning is sometimes God will create a situation in your life where you have no options. And that is the perfect scenario where then God moves in power. Let's begin in the text. We'll start with John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed Him because they saw the signs which He was performing on those who were sick. And when Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So what does the Lord want us to know about His provision? First thing, Lessons on faith continually need to be learned and relearned. Lessons on faith continually need to be learned and relearned. You might even say lessons on trust need to be learned and relearned. We're coming to this, this section here in John chapter 6, and he begins with after these things. The events that are recorded here did not happen immediately after the events that took place in John chapter 5. Now, it says here that the events in John chapter 6 
take place shortly before the Passover. That would mean sometime in March or April. Now, in John chapter 5, it states that Jesus was in Jerusalem that says for the feast of the Jews, but it doesn't name what feast that He's in. Now, there are three main feasts of the Jews. If it was the Feast of Tabernacles, that means that John chapter 5 happened six months prior to this because it would have been September or October. If it was Feast of Pentecost, it would have happened nine months before this event in John chapter 6. And if it had been the Passover, it would have been a year. So the gap between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 is anywhere from six months to a year. So you have to ask, okay, what, what was taking place during that gap? Well, that gap of time, what happened is this is the time where Jesus in Mark chapter 6, gathered his disciples together and he sent them out two by two. And he sends them out two by two and he empowers them to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal people, and then he provides for their needs. Mark chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, actually 7 and 8 says, he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should be that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money belt. So you have this, this picture right here where, where Jesus, he, he calls His disciples together and He sends them out to do ministry in pairs. But He wants them to have faith, to have trust that he, God will provide. And so what He does is He, he tells them that it, they, they can take only one staff for walking They can take no food, no bread. They can take no bag. That means they have no extra clothes. They can't take money. That means they're totally dependent on what God does. And then they go into a town and they preach the gospel. And then they watch and see what God does. Now, after that event in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to Him what they had done and taught. So they're come back and the disciples now are on a spiritual high. They've probably been running around for a few months, seeing what God's going to do. They've seen amazing miracle powers that have been granted to them. They've been able to cast out demons. They've been able to, to, to preach the gospel and, and see people come to faith. They've been able to, to do miracles in Jesus' name. An amazing time for these disciples, so they're excited. And they, and they can't wait to get back with Jesus and, and share what God had done and the amazing miracles that took place. And so they're excited, but also... We found out from Mark chapter 6 that they're also exhausted. I can tell you sometimes the, the thrill of ministry, there is nothing like it. But also, when you serve the Lord, it also it drains you. It takes out of you something both spiritual and physical. And there are times in ministry when you're just cooked. And right here, these guys are kind of cooked. And in Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32, it says, Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat, and they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now we come to John chapter 6. Where did they go? John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Galilee, to Tiberias. So if you were to look at a map in the back of your Bible, you have Jerusalem, that's where they were. They have to walk all the way to the Sea of Galilee, get in a boat, and then go to the end of Galilee. And they went to a place near Beth- Bethsaida. And so, you've got to think, they're, they're tired. They've been doing ministry probably for months. 
They've been sharing the gospel. They've been depending on the Lord. There's an excitement in them, but they're hungry. They're tired. There was a lot of people gathered around. They didn't have a chance to rest. And so basically, they have this in their mind now as disciples. We're going to go get a, kind of a, a sabbatical, a time to rest. But then you go to verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So Jesus and his disciples, they get in some boats at the Sea of Galilee. They're going to cross it to the other end. The disciples' mind are rest, but now when they come to the other end, a bunch of people are there. And not just a few. We know eventually you're going to have 5,000 men, and what most scholars feel is going to be up to 20,000 people show up. You've got a stadium full of people waiting for Jesus to show up. And so kind of put yourselves in the kind of the heart and the mind of where these disciples are. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus takes them up on a mountain. Now, in that area, it's not necessarily a mountain like we think of mountains. I, I think it's probably smaller than Saddleback Mountain. It's more like a grassy knoll or a large grassy hill is where he takes them. So instead of arriving there, they're tired, they're going to find rest. Instead, they're going to find it's a whole other time of ministry and the disciples, they want to take a break, but instead they're going to find out that Jesus has another lesson for them. The fact is they're going to have to relearn the lessons that they already learned a few weeks and months back. Because sometimes, guys, that's what God does. Sometimes He teaches us a lesson, but He has to reinforce it again with basically the same lesson. You know, in 1997, my wife and I as many of you know, we took our three children and we left the United States and we went to England as missionaries to help plant a church. And we went as a Calvary Chapel church plant through Pacific Hills Church. And we went to support a, uh, Pastor Bill Foote. He was the missions pastor at Calvary Chapel, Pacific Hills. And then he went there to plant a church. We followed him. Also, Clint Pickens, who was here a few weeks ago, Clint went as the youth pastor. And there was another couple John and Cecilia Greenroyd, and they took their kids. And all of us kind of as a group, we, we landed on English soil to do ministry. Now, Bill and Carrie, they landed there 10 months before us. And now, Karen and I had never even considered at any point wanting to be missionaries. This wasn't in my brain. It wasn't in my wheelhouse. We, I'd become a Christian about six and a half years before this. I was excited about the Lord. Um, but our family was young. My son Matthew was 11. My son David was nine. Our daughter was five. And I had a, a good, solid career. Karen was working as a teacher. So this was a major step of faith for the Miller household. And we, we became convinced and confirmed over a period of time that God had called us to go and help in this mission work. And, and so the process to becoming a missionary, some of you may not know, but it's usually a very long process. Like the Yoons, they knew about, it took about a three-year mark from the moment they said they think God's calling us to the moment they actually went to Thailand. And that's pretty normal. And you're waiting on God to provide. Well, it was a little different for Karen and I. It took 10 months. And the way that that worked out, I'd probably change it now, but we did a fact-finding mission, went to England, and while we were there, my wife, who's considered an expert in autism, dropped off a couple resumes. They normally don't hire outside of England, but they took one look at her resume. We literally landed back from that little fact-finding mission. They called her, and she flew back to England, and they hired her on the spot. And so instead of a three-year mark, it was a 10-month mark. And we ended up on the mission field, confirmed that God had called us. And guys, in our hearts, we were committed for life. Never been a missionary, didn't know how it worked. All I know is you're all in or you're all out. I'm all in. And Karen, she was convinced we're all in. And so we sold our home. We sold everything we had. What little bit we had, we put on a container and we shipped it over to England. 
and we landed on English soil, we did not have a plan B. It was plan A only, serve the Lord on English soil unless He calls us out. And we believe that the lessons that we learned by faith here were the lessons that were solid that would help us throughout the whole ministry there. What we didn't understand is that God had a whole bunch more lessons for us to learn. And the first six months of ministry in England, it went by really quick. When you're a missionary, they call it the honeymoon period. Ours lasted six weeks. It's kind of exciting. The food is different, new people, and then reality hits. Uh, We landed in August of 1997, and by October, the whole climate changed. It's rainy there. In fact, it rained seven weeks in a row, nonstop, every day. Didn't stop. My wife started work. She worked an hour away from where we lived in Ashford, Kent, and she had to go by train. And so her days were 12-plus-hour days. She would leave at 6.30 in the morning and sometimes not get back until after 6.30 in the evening. And so we, we began to get what you call kind of the grind of life there on the mission field. At th- three-month mark, the church was planted in a school, an elementary school. At first, it was almost non-existent. I, I, I joked that we doubled the church when we landed. And then slowly, people started to come. And at the three-month mark, we started church in a school. And then what we did is we got together with Clint, and we started what was called a youth center. And the youth center was kind of an outreach to, to high school and junior high kids. And we found a kind of a, a large building that we could use. It, it was like a rec center. And the first night, we had almost 200 kids show up. And then every Saturday night, 150, 200 kids would show up. And, and God blessed it. We would play games like ping pong and pool. And then we always put a time right in the middle where we would preach the gospel. And we had dozens and dozens and dozens of teenagers become Christians and, and receive Christ. Matter of fact, our church had a whole lot more teenagers than it did, it did adults. And so God was working and, and we were excited But by about the six-month mark, we were starting to get pretty tired. Uh, Ministry had taken on kind of a heaviness. Karen was working all week. Saturday was where ministry started. We had this rec center, so we had to go prepare it. And so ministry, that whole, we'd go until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And then Sunday, of course, was church and ministry and church and doing all those things. I, by the way, was Mr. Mom, had the whitest whites in England. And... I was taking care of the kids during the day. I was doing ministry. I was evangelizing on the streets when they were in school. I was preparing messages. We had a home Bible study. And so Karen, our life had really sped up and we were busy. And what I realized is that the lesson that I thought I had learned, the Lord was going to have to teach us many, many more lessons. And that's really what we see in this first little section is that the lessons on faith continually need to be learned and relearned. And the second thing we see is sometimes God waits for us to exhaust all of our own resources before He'll provide what is needed. Sometimes God waits for us to exhaust all of our own resources before He will provide what is needed. Sometimes the Lord waits until we're finished trying to do things our own way. And it's at that point when when the only one that we can depend is upon Him, He moves Look at verses 5 through 9, it says, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what, was in t- what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But that, but what are these for so many people? 
So it says here that Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. So you, so you know that when they landed on the seashore, as they're getting off the boat, Luke 9 tells us that there, were, there was a crowd gathered. And he also tells us that that's where I knew it was near Bethsaida, where they end up going. But we also know from the book of Matthew, when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion. Matthew 14, 14 says, when they went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. And right there, he starts to heal the sick. And so you have this picture again, the the disciples are tired, they're worn out from doing ministry, and now you have this large crowd, but instead of hurrying to go find rest, what the Lord does is he stops, and he spends time in this large crowd healing people. Understand, this isn't like, okay, one healing, I'm out. We're talking probably hours that the Lord is with them. He's healing people within their midst. And remember, they hadn't eaten. They've had this long span of ministry. They're very tired. And the day was ending, so it's becoming nightfall. And if you look at verse 12, it says, Now the day was ending, the twelve came and said to him, Hey, send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages in the countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. So you have this problem suddenly that's arisen. You've got plus maybe 20,000 people. It's night. They're kind of in a distant place now. They're, they're far away from a town. Most scholars feel at least four miles away from the closest town. And you have this vast crowd of people, but so what do you do with them? And so what the disciples do is they propose three solutions, and I want us to kind of hone in on that because these are kind of things that we would do. As a matter of fact, I did those three solutions in England. They're man-made solutions. And the first one is, let's just ignore them. <laughs> You know what I mean? You ever had a problem and all of a sudden there's a problem? What do you want to do? I'll just, I'm not going to deal with that right now. Well, that's basically what they're saying there. Hey, verse 12, hey, send them away. I don't want to deal with these people right now. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Right? That's what they're doing right there. I don't want to deal with them. Jesus, you send them away. By the way, Jesus, you take care of it. You know, you handle this one. Sometimes we don't want to deal with our problems, do we? And by the way, when you avoid a problem, it doesn't go away. It tends to hang around, especially when it's 20,000 problems. They like to stick around. So that was the first solution. Hey, Jesus, send them away. Now, the disciples did, I think, what we would probably do in all honesty. I mean, if you have that many people, you're basically saying, hey, sorry, guys, I can't help you. I'm sorry, we just don't have the means. We don't have the ability to take care of this. And, And it made me think about ministry. Sometimes sinners are messy. Sometimes ministry is messy. Sometimes what people bring into the church is not pretty and clean and well-dressed like a Sunday morning. Oftentimes, people who come into church don't really want to know God. They just want something from God. And oftentimes, what it is for us is to have that heart of compassion for them that is willing to go past, I don't want to deal with this right now, but step in, if you will, to their pain and into their mess and see what God will do. And what Jesus is going to do through this is He wants to teach them another lesson. It's a lesson of dependence. It's a a lesson of needing Him. So Jesus asks a question that we know from the book of Luke in chapter 9, verse 13. He turns to them. He says, hey, you give them something to eat. He puts it back on them, which is kind of interesting. Now, it seems that the, the disciples had forgotten what the Lord had been doing for them all the months earlier, right? They had been empowered to perform miracles, to cast out demons. He had provided for them. But they're thinking on a horizontal plane. They're not thinking on a vertical plane. 
And that's often what happens to us, isn't it, is, is we come across a problem and our first response often is, hey, Ben, I'm not dealing with this one. That's way too big for me. I'll just ignore it. But then there's a second solution. Now, it says here in verse 5 that he tested their faith and he turns to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And so, I think the disciples here, because it wasn't just Philip, it was all the disciples, we'll find out from the other text, they respond the way we, we Americans respond. Let's solve our problem by buying stuff, right? We'll just pay for it. Okay, if I don't have the money, I'll charge it, right? So maybe the, if we don't, the first solution doesn't work, we just ignore it, all of a sudden it's still around. Maybe I can buy it off. Now, if we can't buy it off, we litigate it. We'll hire a lawyer to make sure we don't have to deal with the problem. Or if we don't litigate it, maybe we can figure out some other kind of solution. You know, maybe we, we buy insurance so we never have to deal with a problem. Or I don't know. But it's somehow financial. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, He was testing them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. To Philip, it seems pointless because they don't have enough cash to cover the problem. For him, it's, it's physical, it's, it's emotional, it's, it's money. If you can't fix it with money, then it's an insolvable problem. Luke 9.13, he says, give them something to eat. And they said, we have uh, no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for these people. So they're kind of thinking the same thing. Well, maybe unless we go to some town somewhere, we can buy enough food. By the way, a denarius is considered one day's pay for a laborer. The 200 denarius is eight months' pay. It's a very large sum for them just to have a little. And so when they realize that the money won't work, it kind of drives them to their third response. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, Hey, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. He says, But, but what are these for so many people? Matthew 14, 17 says, we have here only five loaves and two fish. So I think the third response is maybe the next step that we would take. Let's pool our resources. Let's check out with the whole crowd. Maybe if we do a survey or something, maybe we can figure out exactly what we can all as a community put together, and then maybe we can handle this issue. And so I guess they pool the crowd. I don't know how they work it. If Andrew just saw the guy with the sack lunch or this little boy, or maybe they surveyed everyone and there was only one little lunch there. I don't know exactly how it works, but all they come up with are these five little loaves and two fish. And Andrew's statement right here, it kind of, it kind of emphasizes the insufficiency of what these disciples can do. It's interesting that Greek term lad is called a double diminutive, and it means he was a little boy. Like, I'm thinking a four- or five-year-old. In terms of provision, little children don't really have a lot to give. And the barley loaves, this is the most common kind of uh, cheapest bread you could have. It was only usually for poor people. It was usually very dry, not very tasty. And so what, what whoever this little boy's mother is, she had given him two little fish, and that's also diminutive. It's, they're little sardines. And it's not really there for sustenance as much as I think just for flavor, to give something to the bread. And so you have this kind of insignificant little lunch. And then the disciples' minds is like, oh, we got nothing here. This is nothing. But understand the way God works. He can take the smallest little thing and turn it into a great thing, can He? And so Andrew and the disciples can only see what's in front of them. <clears throat> They've tried three solutions to solve this problem. First, they ignored it. 
Then they try to see if maybe they can buy it out, and then they kind of pool resources, but none of those are sufficient for the need. And verse 9 in John really says it. It says, what are these for so many people? See, with man, it seems hopeless, and oftentimes in life, that's the problem, isn't it? There are situations in life for us as people that sometimes are hopeless, but this is really the point of this story, and it's the heart of this story. And God is really wanting us to understand in this particular section, with man it may be hopeless, but with God, all things are possible. He has the power to take that problem in your life right now that you brought in this morning that to you is a mountain and to Him it's a bump in the road. He can do anything if we simply will give Him what we have. And we all know that the miracle is about to happen. But there's a problem here, and if you kind of scroll back in the book of John, it's a problem with the people's hearts. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing the signs which He was doing, but Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them because He knew all men. You see, the people weren't there because they wanted to come and worship Jesus for who He is as that Messiah who'd been called and been sent, the one that was present. They were there because they wanted something from that Messiah. They wanted to fix the need. They maybe had empty stomachs and they're hoping this guy will feed them. Whatever it is, and we're definitely going to find this out over the next few weeks when I kind of walk us through John chapter 6. And it made me think about us this morning, that you this morning... Have you come in this morning with a need, and it's a heavy thing? I don't know what it is, and it might be too much for you. You realize kind of the impossibility within your strength, your ability to take care of this issue. And the idea, are are you depending on God just to fix your need, or are you worshiping God for who He is? So often, I think we approach God really with more the dependence for what He's going to fix, really than with the heart for who He is. And the issue here is Jesus is doing this so people know who He is. It's not about what He does, it's about who He is. And sometimes the most difficult things can actually be the best things for us in God's economy. To us, our problem often seems like a mountain, but to God, it's just that little teeny little boop, and He keeps moving, doesn't He? You know, by our ninth month on the mission field, ministry was starting to get some traction. It was kind of an exciting time for me personally. I'd never really done full-time ministry, and so for me to see how a church kind of starts from literally nothing and all of a sudden how God adds to it, it's a very exciting time. And God was using me in ways I'd never imagined and, and showing me that I had certain gifts I didn't even know I had. And, and, and so I was a part of the ministry in a very kind of a strategic time at kind of the earliest point. And I'm kind of a talker and I don't mind getting out and talking to people. And so that was kind of my gift. I was out evangelizing everywhere and talking to people and trying to bring them to church. And, and Bill's more the teacher and so he was preaching the word. And, and then Bill got picked up on radio in England and then throughout Europe and all of a sudden his name got out. And all of a sudden, people started to come to the church. And so about the ninth month, we had about 40 adults. And, and all of a sudden, we had a lot of teens, and now we had kids, and it was a real church. And so in short order, we were getting excited. Things were happening. And, you know, our kids were doing pretty well in England. They kind of fit right into the school system. And I used to walk two of our kids to school. My son, Matthew, used to get on a bus and go to school. And, and they kind of settled real well. But 
But we had a problem. My wife Karen got sick. And I'm not talking a little sick. In January, February of that year, she, she got walking pneumonia. And it wiped her out. And I mean, she was really sick. And as a husband and as a father, you know, you, you want to protect your family. And guys, I was running on kind of steam too, you know, kind of that seven day a week, always on kind of thing. Now for nine months straight, I, I was starting to get burned out as well. And, and so by April, we were really starting to feel the strain as a family. Uh, not really quite sure what to do. Um, the ministry was booming. It was healthy. But as a family, we weren't healthy. And so I'm kind of concerned. So I, I decided to do exactly what the disciples did. I ignored it. <laughs> I said, you know what? I'll put that one aside. I'll do what every American does. I'll work harder. Right? Doesn't that solve the problem? I'll just double my effort, double down. If I work harder, obviously, you know, like the American dream, I'll get more. It's just, it'll solve itself. And so I tried to ignore that one. The problem is I had a wife who was suffering. And so my heart wouldn't let me ignore it even though intentionally I wanted to ignore it. And the problem is, is I had a misconception about ministry. I, I had kind of read something by, you know, a, a missionary from the 1800s. His name was David Brainerd, and he was a young missionary, and he kind of influenced me, and it sounded really spiritual. But if you follow what he says, you will not have long-term ministry. This is what he says. He says, I want to wear out my life in his service and for his glory. Some people like to say, it better like this, I want to burn out for the Lord instead of rust away. And that's exactly what David Brainerd did. He died at the age of 29 of exhaustion. And I was on that track. I was moving like a freight train, trying to hold all the pieces together. But I've learned since then what honors the Lord. The Lord calls us to be a good steward with what He's given us. That's everything in our life, as well as our health, as well as our families. And to have wisdom and to ask Him for it. And to, and to press forward in faith, but also to know when to rest. And, and to have these cycles of Sabbath and, and these kind of things in our life, and they're important. And so that first one of ignoring, the Lord would not let me do that. And so I decided to take a second approach. I looked at our resources, and I looked at our money. Now, if you remember, in verse 7, Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for even to receive a little. But when I looked at our bank account, I thought, cool, we're good. Because I, I, I had been a sales guy, and, and the Lord had blessed my business before we even went on the mission field. And we had in our account, before we left the mission field, about a two-year supply of money, cash, in the account that we could live if my wife didn't work anymore. And so I thought, cool, two years, that's great. So what we'll do, we'll have Karen quit her job, and then I'll kind of go on quarterly cycles going back to the U.S. and I'll raise support, which we didn't do up front. But now we have enough money to survive on the mission field for two years. And, and so that was our plan. And so that's what we did. My wife quit her job. I knew that was right. As a family, we knew it was right. She was away from the kids 12 to 13 hours every day. They missed mom. I'm not a great Mr. Mom. And so she began to be part of the family. Again, it was right. By now, it's June moving into July. And so I started to do the third approach, which is what the disciples did. I decided to collectively go out and figure out kind of the lay of the land and see if I could collectively get people to support the mission. And I started to do research in that area. If you remember, they did that, but all they found was five loaves and two little fish. 
And so I decided I'd probably start contacting everybody we knew who were Christians, contact a bunch of the churches, those kind of things. And we were praying, and we were asking for the Lord's guidance, but really it was more of this kind of prayer, Lord, this is what we're going to do. Lord, would you bless it? Versus, Lord, we're just open to what you want to do. Right after Karen had turned in her notice, that was around June, it was the first part of July, we used to have our mail sent to us on six-month cycles because we had, our bank accounts were actually over here, and that was before we had online banking and all that stuff, and so we, we got all this stuff. You ever read an email or, or read a bank statement and you suddenly felt sick in your stomach? You know that one? Yeah. It's kind of like maybe you, you, you didn't fix your checkbook right and like, oops, I missed that one. Well, what I didn't know when we got our bank statements, it had been about six months, we'd received the last one, that two-year mark of supply of cash in there, the gentleman who we, I had signed over all authority to make decisions for us while we were on the mission field, because I hadn't even looked at it, I was focused on the mission, I didn't know he, he ripped us off. And so we lost about 70% of our value. And so instead of a two-year mark, we were down to about a five-month mark, maybe, if we were really, really conservative. And so this great plan that I had. <laughs> I mean, it instantly was like, went down. We didn't have the resources. And the disciples were there too. They had exhausted their resources. The, the three great plans of man, <laughs> right? They suddenly came to nothing. Two things we've seen, lessons on faith continually need to be learned and relearned. God waits for us to exhaust all of our own resources before He'll provide what is needed. The third one is God provides in ways we least expect. God provides in ways we least expect. God's going to do something here. Jesus is going to perform the miracle that we all know about. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So when the men sat down and, and the number of about 5,000, Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed those loaves to who were seated and likewise also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that there's nothing, so nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and they filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So Jesus, he gives a command to the disciples here that they feed the people. But the disciples, they failed the test. They had forgotten what they had learned. And so he's going to reinvest in them and help them learn again what they should have already known. They had been relying on natural resources. He wants them to rely on supernatural resources. So with the disciples at a standstill, we see Jesus right here. He, he takes charge, right? And, and at first you would think that he would reprimand them. He'd give them a reproach, but he doesn't give them a reproach. What he does is he asks them to get involved. He asks them to begin serving, and he gives them a job. Verse 10, he says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down. Kind of as an aside, because there was grass, it just lets us know it was springtime. In that region, the grass would be brown, dark, hard. You would never want to sit on it during the summer, and it'd be too cold in the winter. So this is springtime. It's pleasant. It's coming towards evening. It's probably a cool evening. You can kind of get a picture of what's going on there. It's probably beautiful. Think about it, 20,000 people. And we know, I think it's from the book of Luke, he says they, they break them into, into sets of 50 people. There's about 400 groups of 50. Now, if you, if you just kind of picture, I'm trying to picture what this would look like. It's a gigantic hill, and everywhere you look, you have these bands of 50 people scattered all over. And you kind of have the Lord at the top of the hill. 
And you can kind of see the picture. You know, he takes the bread and he, he breaks it and he blesses it. And then he, this fish he takes and he blesses it. And, and then, then he begins to perform the miracles. It says that Jesus took the loaves, having given thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated, likewise the fish, as much as they wanted. Now, it's interesting, in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, it says he broke the loaves and he kept giving it to them. So he doesn't do one miracle like, boom. He does a little bit at a time, one basket at a time. And think about the picture. You have the disciples, they run up, hand on the basket, whammo, full of fish and bread. They run to one of the 50s, they pass it out, and you just kind of have this train of the disciples running around, passing out bread and the fish, and, and he's constantly performing the miracle, constantly performing the miracle. Think about the joy and the beauty of these people that are sitting there. They're getting to partake. They're probably starving. They probably haven't eaten for one, two days. And, and what we might think is just a simple meal to them, it's a regal meal. I mean, the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords is, is performing this great miracle of provision right in their midst. And, and, and I get a picture of people rejoicing in the Lord singing praises to his name as well as enjoying a meal together and the great fellowship, little smaller groups of people with their families and, and sitting on grass and just kind of enjoying what God was doing. Moreover, think about the boy who had given the meal. He's just a little lad. That's the word they use, lad. Just a little guy. And he's, I kind of picture a sack lunch. His mom packed it for him and she's probably with him. And it's just this little teeny lunch. And what seemed just insignificant, almost like nothing, God takes something that's so insignificant and He just multiplies it, multiplies it, multiplies it, multiplies it. And this is such a picture for us because I know that right here, right now, some of you think the gifts that God has given me is just a little thing. It's like just a little bit of flour. I can't do anything with this. But God can take you if you'll just give it to Him. We're, we're, we're called to do the addition. We just add what we got. That's all I got, Lord. He does the multiplication. Do you see it? This is just a little boy. This is just a tiny lunch. This is something that's so insignificant when you're talking 20,000 people. And God takes it and He multiplies it. And so for us, one of the lessons we need to learn is, is whatever God has given you, when you submit it to the Lord by faith, He will take it and He will use it for His glory to the abundance of far beyond what you could expect or imagine. And it breaks my heart because some of you aren't serving the Lord. For whatever reason, you, you come on Sundays, you hear a message, you go home, but you never give what God has given to you. And it doesn't matter how little He has given you, He's calling you particularly through this message, to use whatever it is for his glory because he wants to multiply what you have. And so you say, well, I don't know what that is. It doesn't matter. Whatever you can do, if you can talk, become a greeter. If you can serve, work in the coffee ministry. If you can walk and be part of the service here, become an usher. Whatever God calls you to do, whatever simple thing it is that's on your heart, just do. And he takes that. And he multiplies and he multiplies and he gives back and he uses it for his glory. And the Lord always provides in a way we don't expect. He, he always goes beyond what our little minds often think. And he'll do things differently oftentimes than we expect. What man cannot do, he does with ease. Things that seem too big for us, they're very small things to him. 
And so this is a, a beautiful picture. If you look at verses 12 and 13, it says, when they were filled... He said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up, they filled the 12 baskets of fragments from five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So this is an amazing miracle of God's abundant grace. And some say that the 12 baskets represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't think so. I think it's this. You got 12 disciples. This is a lesson for them. He, he, he's hammered home the lesson, I am the provider. If you depend on me, boom, I provide. Now... They have a repeat of the message for a whole week. They got a whole basket of food, each one of them. They get leftovers. And it reminds them again and again and again what they've just learned here. Whatever little thing you have, I will multiply in your midst. Now, Karen and I realized in the early part of July that we were in trouble. My wife was still sick. The ministry was moving. But suddenly we had a financial crisis on our hands. We didn't have any other options. I cannot work in England. I have a missionary visa my wife cannot work because she's sick. We know that it honors the Lord for her to be with our family. We're kind of stuck, and I don't know what to do. And so we begin to pray. In fact, we're fasting and praying, really more like fasting and pleading. And we're pleading with God, help. We don't know what to do. We, we, we ask the church to pray, and they begin to pray. We contacted Pacific Hills here. Would you guys pray? And they began to pray. And I felt two very heavy weights. One is I felt called to be there in England and, and to use those pastoral gifts that God had given me. And two... I'm a dad, and I'm a husband, and I feel the weight of what it means to, to care for your family. And it was, I think, mid to late July, didn't know what to do, we're kind of stuck, and I get a call from my old company. My boss's name was Bill. Now, he knew nothing of our predicament, and he calls out of the blue, and he just says, hey, Rob, how you doing? I said, okay, and kind of small talk for about a minute, and then he said, hey, we landed a big account at St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton. And he says, you know, I've been interviewing people, reps for that account to take over as an account executive. He said, but you keep coming to my mind. He goes, you'd be perfect for this account. He goes, I want to offer you a job. Would you even consider it? And I'm like, oh, man. This one, I hadn't even prayed for this one. Like, it wasn't even in my mind. And so, and it wasn't only that he offered the job, but it was a good salary. He also says, I will fly your family back at my expense, and I'll bring back all your household." That means all your furniture, and if you have a car, I'll even bring that back. I'm like, wow, the golden umbrella. But I had a thought. I said, I wonder if this might be the enemy instead. And I said, you know, I need to pray. Would you give me two weeks? He said, yeah. And so we prayed. And we asked the Lord for direction, for help, to see, you know, if this was God or not. And, and I, I wish I could say that, you know, there was like a light from heaven <laughs> that came down and made it plain. But honestly, it wasn't that sometimes the way it works is it's the simplest and the wisest choice. And I realized as a dad and a husband that this was the simplest and the wisest choice. And so I accepted the, the position. We left on August of 1997, and we returned back in September of 1998, just under 14 months. We planned to be there for life. And my idea is that we would just die on English soil, but God's idea was different. He wanted us to come back here because God's ways are not our ways, and he does things the way he wants to do it. And for us, it's, it's learning to be sensitive to his ways and follow his lead. So those are the three things we've seen. 
What does the Lord want us to know about his provision? Lessons on faith need to be learned and relearned. God will often wait for us to exhaust all of our own resources before his resources are provided, and God provides in ways that we least expect. And the last one is man's ways are not God's ways. Man's ways are not God's ways. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. This is verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which had been performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come to take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain alone. Two things very quickly that happen here. It says here, this is truly the prophet. Now, Jesus is a prophet, but the people had a misconception of what kind of prophet. To them, he's he's a prophet just like Moses was a prophet. And they're thinking of Deuteronomy 18, verse 5. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And so they're thinking he's just like Moses. Well, he is a prophet like Moses, but he's so much greater than Moses. Just as God is greater than Moses, Christ is greater than Moses. And not only did they think he was a prophet, they, they wanted to make him king. Now, Jesus is a king. But this is not his kingdom. He's so much greater than an earthly king. And in their mind, their motivation is we want this kind of a king because we get fed every day. Right? He's going to feed our stomachs. And not only that, he'll probably take over Rome and, and we'll get our own little kingdom set up. But what they don't understand, that his realm is of a different realm. Remember, Pilate asked that question, are you the king of the Jews? How did Jesus respond John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He is a heavenly king. And sometimes we have a misconception of who Jesus is. And sometimes people make Jesus out to be something that he's not or someone that he's not. We need to worship him for who he is. And the lesson to be learned here from this is not the great miracle that happened of him providing bread. The lesson is that he is the bread. We need food for our soul. And so God sent the very son to the cross to be the living bread so that we might truly have life. Food lasts for a moment, but Jesus is everlasting life. And the question you must ask yourself, is he your living bread? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of the gospel. I thank you how you've given so much. But Lord, it always points back to Christ so that we may know you through him. Bless us this morning, Lord, as we finish this service. And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. Some of the lessons that the Lord taught both Karen and I and our family, they they are lessons that we refer back to a lot. And what I've learned over time is that he does continue to keep relearning the same lessons of faith and trust in the Lord. And I'm so grateful that when we came back that the Lord led, led us to this church. And many of you know I came here in 1999. And I was working as a sales guy and 
That was my job in printing, and I did that until 2006. And God provided for my family, for my wife not to have to work, and he was faithful through it all. And, you know, I, I was blessed to be asked to be part of this church, and I'm still blessed to be a part of this body that God has called me to. But what I want us to, to realize today is that I know within our midst, some of you are struggling with something. That there's an issue in your life that has become monumental. And you do not have the answer. And I'm calling you to turn to Christ for the answer. He is the one that provides. He calls us to simply trust in Him. Because our faith has no power. He has the power. But He calls us to simply trust and believe. So if you've come here this morning with something, I want you to offer it up to Him this morning. This is what faith is. You, you take a step with your little morsels and he takes it and he multiplies it. I want us as a church to be honest before God. If you have something this morning, I want you right now to give it to him. It's so important for us to learn this lesson. So let's bow our heads. And I'll pray and whatever it is in your heart that you know, you can give it to him right now. Father, these things in life are, are too big. This issue in my, in my heart or, or in my life, it truly has become a mountain. Lord, I, I don't know the answer. I've tried all my schemes, and they've come to naught. But now, right now, this morning, it's clear that I have not submitted it to you. But I do that right now, Lord Jesus. Take this from me, Lord. I hand it to you. I ask for your multiplying grace to take it and work with it. I submit myself to you. I trust you. I have nothing. But you are everything. You're a food for my soul. And I trust you alone. In Jesus' name.